I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Coming up, part two of our graduation special edition, where we talk to PhD students about their thesis work, giving us a view of the cutting edge of new research. Today's edition of How on Earth is part two of our annual PhD thesis show celebrating the graduation season. Our guests are four graduate students who are getting their PhDs this year from the University of Colorado Boulder. They have joined us to talk about their thesis research and what led them to those topics. Our guests are Lauren Matilski from Jilla and the Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences, Katie Gatch from the Technology, Media, and Society Program in the Atlas Institute, Yet Manta from the Biomedical Engineering Program with the Department of Electrical Engineering, and Abhijit Suresh from the Department of Computer Science and the Institute of Cognitive Science. So Lauren Matilski, I have your title as Dynamics of Rotation and Magnetism in the Sun's Convection Zone and Tachocline. Can you explain to me what your thesis is all about? Sure. Well, I have to explain some words in my title right off the bat because probably a few of them are unfamiliar. Um, Dynamics, that's just when you throw a baseball and gravity pulls it to the ground, but with a lot more equations. Rotation and magnetism are hopefully good. Rotation, you spin around. Magnetism is where the compass needle points on the Earth. And then convection zone. So the sun is spherical. It's a ball composed of a few different layers. In the core, that's where there's nuclear burning. So hydrogen gets fused into helium, and that's what powers all the solar energy and actually the energy on Earth as well. Then there is the inner 70% of the sun by radius is called the radiative interior. It's called that because radiation, basically the pressure associated with light supports the sun against gravity. Um, And then the convection zone, which is what my thesis was really focusing on is the outer 30%. And that's like a spherical pot of boiling water. You heat it from within and the water on the stove, you heat it from below. And then the fluid, the solar fluid, in this case, hydrogen gas um, moves around with bulk motions like a pot of boiling water. And then finally, tachocline. So it turns out that Galileo 400 years ago looked at sunspots and noticed that they moved around faster near the solar equator 
than in the high latitude regions near the poles. Um, and so for a very long time, we or collective humanity has known that the sun rotates differentially. The equator goes around about once every 25 days. Um, the poles go around about once every 30 days. So that's some significant differential rotation. Rotation rate varies with latitude. And you can actually probe the interior of the sun to determine the rotation rate deeper down. And what people find is that the rotation rate varies latitudinally deep within the sun until you hit the radiative interior. So at the bottom of the convection zone, actually everything starts to rotate like a solid ball. So as far as we know, the inner 70% of the sun by radius rotates basically like a solid ball. And this happens in a very thin region, which is called the tachocline. So tachocline is some Greek hybrid word. It was coined by some people here in Boulder and in Cambridge uh, 20 years ago, but it basically just means the rotation is all the same. Um, it goes to a solid ball. It's great that explaining your title yeah. in itself can be a thesis. Yeah, <laughs> essentially in this case, yeah. And my actual work was devoted mostly toward understanding this tacker plan. So the convection zone is important because it's part of the tacker plan. It's the top part. And this was a basically a two-pronged approach. It all involved theory. So basically I run um, large simulations on supercomputers to try to capture the 3D motions of the gas and magnetic fields. And so the first part of my thesis was to really understand that differential rotation in the convection zone. Um, what is creating that? How does it vary throughout the interior? And the other part was understanding the tackle climb. And that involves magnetic fields. And the other thing that is part of all this is that the we get hit with solar flares and coronal mass ejections. These are things that bombard the power grids and satellites in space. This could be really bad. So the reason I think there's a lot of money in this research is that we want to know where those things get their energy um, and they get their energy from the interior magnetic field. That gives a very good understanding of the complexity of what goes on with the sun and all the different layers. That was really helpful to understand. After all that, what were the results you had? Right. Um, so the results were basically we could recover a cycling magnetic field. So a magnetic field that would reverse from north to south about once a year, and it would have fairly regular cycles, which is something that we see on the sun. So that was kind of one of the more significant results is that we could reproduce a lot of aspects of the movement of the interior magnetism of the sun. And the other thing that we did is we actually have a simulation where there is a cycling magnetic field like that, that seems to have a radiative interior that is rotating like a solid ball, which is good because um, that kind of represents the first time in a in one of these big global simulations um, that we've reproduced something like the tacker plant. So that's where my thesis actually ended. And now I'm working as we speak on a paper to be submitted very soon on these results. I know understanding the sun is really important because of the solar earth connection and space weather. And like you said, impacts to the power grid. So I assume that this is yet another step toward maybe understanding the sun better for those type of applications or understandings. Would that be a fair statement? Um, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. Let me move on now to Katie Gatch, whose thesis title 
is how to delete the dead, honoring affective connections to post-mortem data. So Katie, tell us about deleting the dead. Mm, Thank you, Joel. Um, So my topic was especially rewarding to work on because it's something that so many people can relate to. Um, How many of us have heard either from our parents, if we don't use Facebook or, or seen ourselves, if we use Facebook, the weird things that happen with someone's data after they've passed away and we're still seeing traces of them show up in this digital environment. So my thesis was about, uh, first of all, Facebook's really cutting edge options for people to choose what happens to their own profile if they pass away. They're really the only social media platform that has any options to speak of when it comes to data of dead users. And they also have a memorialization feature, which lets people continue to share memories and thoughts about their loved ones who have passed away and had a presence on that platform. They also have an option for you to have your data deleted off of the platform in the case of your death. In that case, someone would you know, notify Facebook that this person had died. They would send an obituary or a death certificate. Then Facebook would make it look like you had never been on that platform at all. They would delete any data that had been created by your account during your lifetime. So my thesis was concerned with how we can do that in ways that honor the needs of surviving loved ones and let people have the legacy that they want to have and really honor the wishes of deceased people in terms of their digital footprint and and the things they leave behind online. It's a very important thing that a lot of people may not think about. And death is a very difficult thing to talk about in some cultures. It sounded like you worked with a lot of people directly to get feedback on the process that was done. What was the most surprising result that you found from this process? That's a great question. Um, I think there are so many things that are surprising to the living when we are learning about the dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one of the things that was really surprising to me was, I don't think people realize how loved they are. And that's not to say that people don't recognize that they have spouses and children and parents and and loved ones during their life, but I don't think we on our own are capable of recognizing what that love looks like when we don't have a say in it anymore. So what happened with that and the way that I learned that was in the deletion study, which is the third of four studies in my dissertation. And that was talking to people who had selected the delete after death option on Facebook, and then talking to people who had to carry out that request for deletion after a loved one had died. So the people who selected delete after death said, I just want things to be easy for my loved ones. I don't want to burden them with anything. Facebook is a communication tool, and I'm not going to be needing to communicate in that way anymore. So just do away with it. But for people who had survived someone, and then had to delete all of that. We learned all of these really incredible things about what that data can come to represent about a person's life. And the desire to not be burdensome to loved ones often meant that they would make a different decision than you wanted Mm -hmm. during your lifetime. So what people really want for their loved ones to not be burdened with things, to not have any additional pain on top of the loss itself, what we found is that there's this dilemma between people thinking deletion is easiest 
but actually keeping the profile and having a place to communicate easily and spread the news mm -hmm. and share, you know, here's the memorial activities we're doing in honor of this person, even to come back a year later and say like, Hey, it's the anniversary of your death. And I'm thinking about you. Those kinds of actions are really cathartic and healing for people who have lost a loved one. And they're not the kind of thing that you assume would be meaningful for your own life when you're making these pre-planning arrangements in the event of your own death. So what I, what I learned is that people do not talk to their loved ones enough about what they want to happen after they're gone. And you might and not think, think of what to do with my Facebook account, exactly. much less remember to tell people about your passwords. Exactly. And so what I recommend to people now all the time is, oh my gosh, set up a legacy contact. If you use Facebook, if you've ever uploaded a single photo to Facebook, if you think there's any chance your loved ones would find meaning in the things that you have done there, set up a legacy contact. It maintains your privacy. It maintains the security of your data. And it does give your loved ones a little bit of a say in what your memorial would look like. And they can eventually delete it if they want to. So it puts all the control in their hands instead of being subject to something that you know, you didn't know how to think about during your life because who does? That's wonderful. It's a really great message to get out there. That really mm -hmm. sounds like it was an interesting and inspiring thesis. It was. Thank you. Thank you very much, Katie. My next guest is Yet Manta. Yet's thesis title is Promotion of Data Reuse in Synthetic Biology. So Yet, tell me what that's all about. So I guess starting with synthetic biology, the idea is we have genetic engineering, and at the moment that is very much a single use. It tends to be very artisanal, and the idea behind synthetic biology is to abstract some of that information to try and make it easier to think about engineering the same way we do with some of our other engineering subjects. So saying for DNA, you can think of it having specific functions. So for example, promoters are the bit of the DNA that tell us where transcription starts. And so thinking about how will this promoter work in this organism and that organism, and how might you port it between the two and be able to characterize it so you can easily reuse it. This was the principle behind synthetic biology. It turns out we're still not very good at reusing our data, partially because biology is complex. So actually the way it works in one tissue might be different from another tissue or even between organisms. And partially because people don't always save data in a way that's easy to access. So it can just be that it's lost. We can no longer find the sequences. It can be that it's behind paywalls. It can be that it doesn't have all of the data we need to reuse it. So if we don't know at what temperature you got these results, then it might not be meaningful because the results might be very different at different temperatures. So my thesis is really about we call fair data. It has to be findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. So the idea of how do we get people to store their data and what are the tools we then need to be able to find it and reuse it? It's kind of like a parts store or a library in some way for biological data. I also think of it as like a um, repository for programming languages where they write some cool little subroutine that other people can use, but you need to know under what circumstances it can be used, the input and the output and other conditions. Is that kind of a good analogy to use with what you're putting together for biology? Uh, yes. So part of what I worked on is SimBioHub, which we call a parts repository. You can store other kinds of information, but I mainly focused on parts. 
a lot of the analogies we see as Lego blocks. So, you know, putting bits of DNA together like Lego and the idea of how do you sort Lego if it's not a single package, but if it's instead like the old fashioned creator ones. So I guess thinking about it in terms of like what Lego you might describe as two by three and red and this height and it has studs and isn't smooth. The equivalent of what is that for a promoter? And particularly because in synthetic biology, we follow design, model, build, test, learn as a life cycle. We need to know what do the modelers need to know about these parts, as well as what do the experimentalists need to know. And that isn't always exactly the same. And often we need the experimentalists to provide the parameters for the modelers to use again. So is SynBioHub something that had existed before, but your approach is more standardizing it in some way? It grew out of a project at Newcastle University, and it had been worked on previously. My work in particular was looking at the data capture into SymbioHub. So there's an underlying language, uh, ESPL, the Synthetic Biology Open Language, but it's based on RDF, which is, so it's a whole bunch of triples. So basically everything is described subject, predicate, object. In this case, biology, and then the predicate would be is, and the object might be fun. Uh, (laughs) Or right, sky is blue or sky color blue. And so that's generally difficult for people to write. There were Python programming languages and Java programming languages to write this, but for a lot of biologists in the wet lab, that's not particularly easy. So I looked at being able to pull information from lots of different kinds of spreadsheets and working with experimentalists and starting to look at there's lab automation now. So seeing if we could pull any of this information from the robots that are already being used in the lab. All right. Well, thank you very much for that yet. Let me now move to Abhijit Suresh. And Abhijit, I believe your title for your thesis is Automating Feedback to Improve Teachers' Effective Use of Instructional Discourse in K-12 Mathematics Classrooms. Can you tell me more about automating that feedback? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. So in middle school K-12 classrooms, mathematic lessons, uh, practicing teachers often find it challenging to keep the students engaged in rich discussion around mathematic discourse. So there is evidence in, uh, there are several theoretical frameworks in mathematic instruction that shows that by using specific set of instructional strategies, what I mean by instructional strategies is, for example, if the teacher says, what do you think about what John said? This is an example of prompting the student to ask questions and logically think. So there are many such different instructional strategies that has been identified. So typically, uh, these practicing teachers seek help from someone called an instructional coach or also an expert teacher to come into the classroom, listen to them, be a human observer, and give personalized feedback on these different use of these strategies. But it's time-consuming for both of them to do this practice, to improve the instruction. Like, what can we do to scale it? So my dissertation is focused on creating a system that can automate this feedback that you can provide teachers like strategies that they can use in the classrooms to keep the students engaging and promote them to make it equitable for the students to participate in discussion 
it's backed up well defined and well theorized literature can you give a real life example of how a math teacher would use it what would it look like in the classroom there are several different strategies i gave you an example of one so another example would be uh, the teacher repeating what the student said which is also known as restating for example if a student says this is one and the teacher says yes this is one so it's kind of repeating what the student said so it's kind of reiterates and that's one example another example is relating to another student which is you say hey john what do you think about what mary said so asking them to think uh, logically about what others talked about and encouraging them to participate in those discussions what led you to this topic what interested you that made you pick this as a thesis topic the reason why i picked it is this is a very so i am work with a professor tamara sumner who is uh, specialized in uh, cs education and i come from a background of machine learning and deep learning which is basically uh, what powers your alexa and siri and all those devices that you have and i want to use that for some purpose that can benefit the community and education was one thing that satisfied me so my dissertation can be summarized as creating an alexa for providing teachers with feedback and it has a satisfaction aspect to it when like whatever i do today is going to help a teacher tomorrow help a student tomorrow to be better like i am here today because some teacher did a great job and like all those teacher together taught me all those things and i am i have so much foundations because of them and this is my way of giving them back using the skills that i gained through my academic experience well let me just quickly ask the others here as well like katie what was it that motivated you to come up with your thesis topic well who doesn't love death right no <laughs> i'm kidding um well my background is in cultural anthropology and i was deeply influenced by my advisor dr michael wesh at kansas state university and since working with him back in undergrad i was always looking for ways to really dive into human experiences that intersected with technology in a meaningful way so i sort of stumbled upon this topic during my masters program at georgetown university when i was working with dr meg jones and she directed me to cu to atlas and to dr brubaker um who was my dissertation advisor so it was definitely a series of relationships but also just recognizing that death is the universal human experience and if we're really designing technologies to facilitate human experiences and human relationships then this is something we really need to keep at the forefront of our thinking in that area i could imagine death isn't necessarily the only aspect here you could extend this to other areas of human interactions online and with technology in general Mm, definitely i actually have uh, another publication in my department that i'm i'm the third author on behind uh, anthony pinter in information science and that was about breakups and social media so another death and breakups basically uni universal <laughs> human experiences yes <laughs> well yeah let me ask you what led you to synthetic biology when you were a small child did you say i want to do synthetic biology Uh no I thought I was going to be a physicist and then realized I thought the problems in biology were more interesting so when oh I'll do like 
quantum photosynthesis or something, and then realized it's a lot of equations that become very abstract. And what I liked was the numerical work. So I was very lucky during my undergrad to work for a summer with someone who did genetic algorithms in terms of like machine learning and went, oh, actually doing some of the like computational work and applying some of that quantitative principles to biology. So finished my undergrad in wet lab biology and then went on to look at some of the tools to make the life for wet lab biologists easier. It's just fascinating seeing the paths people take and also to realize that your thesis is not defining you. Probably 10 years from now, you may be doing something else. Well, Lauren, let me just ask you as we wrap up here, what led you to the sun? Right. Um, well, I, I'm a bad example. Um, my, the tachocline was discovered about 30 years ago, and my advisor, Yuri Tomrey, has been very interested in it since it was discovered. That's definitely what led me to the tachocline. And I actually do really enjoy learning about how does the sun do what it does. And actually, I'm going to continue. I'm going to a postdoc in Santa Cruz, and I'm going to continue studying tachoclines. So uh, another bad example. No, I, it, actually, I think it is an, a common example. A lot of times it's what your advisor was doing. They inspire you. So I would like to thank you all very much for your time, and I appreciate you being on the show. Those guests were Lauren Matilski, Katie Gatch, Yet Manta, and Abhijit Suresh graduate students who recently completed their PhDs at the University of Colorado, Boulder, giving us an insider's look into their thesis research. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Blue Claw Philharmonic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.